Got out RC time. Welcome back. Andrew Sills, my name. And you are here to listen about all things about radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. Thanks for joining me. Big shout out to everybody that's still in lockdown. Woohoo! We're still going in lockdown here in many parts of Australia. But uh, still a little bit to go, I think. And then we'll be free like everybody else and we can get back to the flying fields. Great episode for you. Uh, a guy coming to join us that I've been trying to get for a long time, and his name is Dennis Bealby. And Dennis is, he's, he's flown all sorts of different things, but he's predominantly a helicopter guy at the moment. But uh, good story to tell, been around the hobby for a long time. So stay tuned for my chat with uh, the one and only Dennis Bealby. And, uh, but before I get to that, let's just have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, lots been on my mind, actually. Uh, but first of all, before I talk about what's in my mind, I've got to remind you about a special promotion that's running at the moment, uh, thanks to RC World down here in Geelong in Victoria and Eddie Edwards. And if you listened to last week's podcast, you would have heard about this promotion. Now, the promotion is around the NGH range of petrol engines. Uh, beautiful two-stroke and four-stroke uh, petrol engines coming out of uh, China. The company's been going for, I think, 11 years or something like that. And they've got a two-stroke range uh, that starts at 9cc and goes all the way up to 70cc twin seating to some of those bigger models. And that's a twin too, by the way, that 70cc. And a a four-stroke range as well, ranging from 30 to 60cc twin inline. Imagine that 60cc twin inline in the the nose of a Mustang or something like that. Well, and it's a four-stroke as well, so no doubt it's going to sound good. So NGH engines is the range. Um, look, they're using quality equipment. That they're, they're developing um, engines for uh, UAV applications as well. So they know their stuff. Warbow carburetors in them. And what I like about some of their motors uh, in their two-stroke range, especially is their the front-mounted, uh, I think maybe the four-stroke as well, the front-mounted carburetor. Now, a lot of manufacturers have moved to this rear carb behind the back of the engine, which sometimes is a bit of a pain to get to, but it makes a lot of sense to... Put that carby in the airflow up the front, so that's what they do. Uh, single prop nut design I like for 60cc or four stroke and 70cc. Oh, except for the 60cc four stroke and 70cc, where you get to a four bolt pattern. But I like that single prop nut, you know, on those smaller sizes. Uh, and of course, RC World is helping all the flat out RC listeners with a special 10% discount offer for NGH engines. All you need to do is visit RC World. .com.au, they're, they're bringing them in here into Australia, rcworld.com.au, and all you need to do is at the checkout, add the NGH engine to the cart, and at the checkout, you see a little box to put a coupon code, and the coupon code to use is FLATOUTNGH. Put it all in capital letters, just to be on the safe side, FLATOUTNGH, F-L-A-T-O-U-T-N-G-H. Just put it in at checkout, and you receive a 10% discount on your NGH petrol engine. Don't forget, visit rcworld.com.au to find out all about the engines. Check them out on YouTube. Check out the reviews. You'll find out that they're pretty good engines. So flat out NGH is the code to use. 10% discount. You get it because you listen to Flat Out RC podcast. Now, moving on. What's been on my mind? Well, interesting. I got a phone call during the week from a, a, a stellar lady. Patsy Brown, 
from the Rap Fun Factory. We've had Patsy and Richard on. Uh, they, were, they hail from up in Queensland and they build uh, amazing composite kits uh, for themselves, uh, Mustangs and you know other warbirds and things like that. And uh, the way those two work together is just absolutely phenomenal. And uh, been a big fan of them. And, and, and Patsy rang me during the week to, to give me some news. And she was telling me that she is now the president of AMAS. Now, we know that in Australia here we've got two flying associations, uh, one's NAAA and AMAS. And, uh, you know, we had a really good chat and I was really honest with her and saying how, you know, AMAS is relatively new. I can't remember how old they are now. Um, probably seven, eight years old, I'd say. Maybe even a little bit longer. Uh, and they basically developed to become an alternative sort of insurance provider uh, to we hobbyists. And uh, I wasn't totally happy with AMAS um, in the way that they really tried to compete against the MAAA and, and went a bit sort of head-to-head. But Patsy rang me and said, look, I'm taking on the role as AMAS president because up at Bundaberg where she flies, it's an AMAS club and, and it's a great club. Uh, beautiful facilities there, great field. And... Patsy's one of those persons that has a lot of enthusiasm. And I actually liked what she said. She said that she's embarking on now a strategy to reposition AMAS. And in their latest newsletter, which she sent me, she talked about three key points that she's embarking on. And that is, uh, the first one being, is to provide affordable, simple to understand model flying insurance to the individual model model flyer, whether they fly by themselves with a group or at a club. So the AMAS offering is, it's an individual insurance offering, not sort of a club level kind of thing uh and and it is you know quite cost effective uh i don't know to, to be honest i don't know how their insurance policy stacks up to the mAA and i actually asked patsy that i think she needs to do a due diligence and do that comparison to see but it, it, it's it's a, just an alternative out there uh the secondary role she sees is in helping individuals or clubs to understand and integrate into a constantly changing regulatory environment so uh you know we aero modelers sit really under CASA. And we're lucky that we've got the likes of MAAA that do a lot of negotiations. And AMAS sort of doesn't work totally in that space. But what they can do is help people understand what they need to do with CASA, et cetera, if you want to need area approvals to fly and that kind of stuff if you're establishing a club. And then thirdly, the AMAS has a role to offer social connections amongst all model flyers via newsletters, YouTube presentations, flying events, things like that. She was one of the things that she, that didn't come through in the newsletter, which she did say to me, is that, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school, Patsy, but I, I think it's a critical message that we talked about is that gone are the days of trying to position AMS as a competitor to MAAA because MAAA is a different beast altogether, uh, and still sort of the dominant flying association. They offer, you know, probably a, a bit more than what AMS can, but and even Patsy said this to me is that. There is a role for AMAS uh, to support some clubs. And, and one of the things we looked at is if you're a, a relatively small club, want to keep your costs down, pretty much self-managed, you're out in the country, you know, pretty remote areas, and you just want to make sure you've got insurance, then AMAS might be the solution for you, might be the solution. And and, and Patsy wants to spread that word. I know that she wants to do that. And so uh, happy to bring that message out to you because Patsy is a, is a, is a great person and full of enthusiasm to to reposition AMAS into the flying community as an alternative insurance provider for, for certain situations. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's even spoken to people at the NAAA and and shared that view and and, and uh, the working relationship seems to be a lot better than what it has been in the past. And so I just want to say, well done, Patsy. 
you're a breath, breath of fresh air, uh, really enthusiastic, and I hope that uh, the rest of the committee get behind you in uh, in the work that you're going to do and uh, just keep up the good work. Patsy Brown, now get involved with AMAS as president. We like to support those that have been on the Flat Out RC podcast, so go and do it, Patsy. Well done. Time for my favourite part of the Flat Out RC podcast and probably no doubt yours because you don't need to listen to just my voice rabbiting on. And this week we have a guest. His name is Dennis Bilby. And Dennis and I, we've been trying for months to get get him on on the podcast. And what didn't help is... He moved from from Melbourne up into to Queensland into um, to, to Childers, so suburban Melbourne all the way in sort of a regional area of Queensland and loving life up there, which is good to see. But Dennis got into the hobby via his father. His father was a very active aero modeler um, in the in the scene in Australia, and you know he worked at Craft Radios. So Dennis got involved at an early age, uh, flew all sorts of different things. He even told me that he was called for Eddie Edwards, the uh, the, the pattern pilot, uh, as well. He had a big break from the hobby, I think uh, 20 years or so, 20, 25 years or something break in the hobby, and then came back via RC Hellies and now um, has, he's, he's known as a heli guy, including uh, running a, a little sort of business, um, selling some uh, heli parts and things like that, which is good to see. So... Here is my chat with Dennis Bilby. Now, don't hang up if you're not a heli guy because we cover a lot of different ground and uh, you'll find my chat and Dennis's story really interesting. So over to my chat with the one and only Dennis Bilby. This guest I've been trying to track down for a long, long time, uh, but finally managed to pin him down. Dennis Bilby, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Yeah, you had to you had to follow me into state to, to get hold of me, but uh, yeah, it's it's been a bit of a bit of a trial and tribulation to get this set up. Well, that's true. I I, I first met you at the um at, at my local field at an event, and uh, and you had your hellies there and stuff like that. And I said, Dennis, you got to come on to the podcast because you've got a great story to tell, and I want someone to talk a bit about hellies. But you know, we'll touch on fixed wing as well because you've got a background in that as well. But uh. Yeah, and then we just couldn't get the moons to align, and then you moved to Queensland to get further away from me. But um, <laughs> the good old internet means you're just as good as sitting next to me. So uh, exactly, it, it makes these kind of things. Like I've never actually sat face to face with with one of my guests and recorded a podcast. Yeah, and these these days that that that's going to be more and more the case, isn't that, it? That's true, but it, it just gives you great flexibility when you can just use the internet. And uh, we were just playing around with microphones, and we just you know. Uh, it's amazing the quality that I can get really out of just uh, people's phone calls and stuff like that. So anyway, it's all good. Now, Dennis, as I mentioned, you just haven't just ventured into this hobby in the past few months. You've been around for a long time, but where did your journey in aero modeling begin? Yeah, look, I'm 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 an older older member now, but I'm, I'm sort of in my fifties now. But uh, I was lucky enough to get into the hobby uh, from pretty much year dot my uh my dad was a aero modeler and so uh i was soloing fixed swings when i was about five years old so i got in got in got in very early just a just a little uh two channel um plane that my dad had set up for me and uh so yeah, I've I've been in a very long time, but I did take a big break in the middle. So flew fixed wing for for a few years, 
got into cars then actually spent a spent a, all my teen years and through into my early 20s doing RC cars and competing um, on road and off road lots of uh, lots of events uh, around Australia and uh, a few international but um, that really burnt me out actually that was that was the thing for me um, burnt me out with with uh, with the competition and uh, and uh, the money um, also with with uh, car competition was was too much. So uh, I actually took a sabbatical, but that sabbatical lasted about twenty years. Oh, did it? Well, it's interesting that um, so your dad got you in. It's a common story, you know. Dad flies model airplanes, gets son to the field, but I always say that that doesn't necessarily mean that the hobby sticks. That uh, often. The kid goes in a different path, but obviously you're sort of stuck with it over the years. What, what club were you flying at? Where were you flying in those early days? So, yeah, when, when we first started, it was we were in South Gippsland, and so we used to fly down at the Stony Creek race course. Um, but when I was about seven years old, Dad went to work for Craft RC Systems. Oh, that's right. So yeah. he, he, he turned the hobby into his business. So he was a farmer, and when we moved to Geelong, um, where Kraft was, he moved there to take over the head uh, radio tech role at um, Kraft alongside uh, alumnaries lum- like uh, Brian Green and uh, Barry Angus and, and these guys. So so um, I flew my early days were actually at uh, Geelong. So we used to fly at the uh, – uh, originally we had the Geelong field down, um, uh, down beside the river and then later on moved out to the Dog Rocks field. So, um, yeah, so uh, used to do a lot of uh, – Dad and I used to do some display days together. Um, so we had uh, – uh, we did some glider toes. So uh, um, Dad used to take the uh, – we had a big ugly stick set up um, and uh, used to tow the little glider behind it. So we, we did uh, like the Geelong show and things like that, which was a lot of fun. Um, and we also ended up with some um, some of the early ducted fans, and he and I did a few few displays with the uh, I think it was the Byron the Byron um, Byron original. MiG fifteen yeah 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 MiG twenty one and, and F fifteen I think F sixteen sorry what were those ducted what were they like because I remember reading about them in magazines and things like that but were they any good to fly and to you know that, that, they flew like a trainer they were they were little. They were underpowered, so they had a like a ninety, a pipe ninety on them, but they were just so inefficient mm. that um, they they were really underpowered. But um, from a uh, especially, I used to fly the, the the MIG, and the big swept wing on it, and it, it used to fly like a trainer. It was just it was very easy to fly, very soft and gentle. But the noise it used to make gave the impression that it was going at a million miles an hour. Mm. Yeah, with the screaming, screaming, screaming jet. Yeah, is it true they're very tricky to tune and set up? The, the engines that is. Uh, the engines w- were a pain, um, and you, you, you. It was always you're always on the edge with them as well, with the small fan in them, and and uh, uh, temperature was was sometimes an issue. They had big cheater holes in the bottom of these things because the ductwork wasn't big enough um, uh, out of the nose, but. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Dad did most of the tuning at this stage, so I wasn't really, uh, really that competent at tuning nitros. But, um, 
but no, we, we did some stuff like that. Um, I used to, the, the other big thing that we did was uh, dad was a pylon racer. So um, I was his caller for many years, um, did several nationals and uh, dad placed in the nationals with his, with his pylon races with the FAIs, um, racing with guys like Ranjit Phelan and, and, and co. Um, so, yeah, we used to travel to the nationals every year and, and um, uh, up until I was sort of in my early teens, um, used to call aerobatics as well. I've, I've called for um, before uh, poor old Barry Angus died. I used to call for Barry at some of the competitions, and I called for Eddie Edwards uh, as well a few times when when I was uh, when I was younger. Um, so yeah, those those sort of things. That was my early mo era modelling was was all based on sort of uh, going to the nationals and doing that. And I did a bit of um, peanut scale and and uh, uh, indoor. Um, uh, hand launch glider um, uh, at the nationals and a few things like that, which was a bit of fun. Um, but I never really competed. Competed. I never really competed with RC. It was more, um, uh, as I said, as a caller or um, uh, doing some of the free flight. Yeah. And so, uh, who taught you how to fly? Was it your dad or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dad, um, as I said, when I was about five, I, I was able to. He, he would hand launch this. Uh, this little rudder elevator with a little OS15 on the front of it, um, uh, and I'd uh, be able to fly that up and, and bring it in and land it. So, uh, um, which was uh, he actually built me a, a custom-built single stick um, <laughs> so that I could get my hands around the transmitter. Gee, I tell you what, you were surrounded by some some big names there of that that era, really. Um, and I suppose with your dad being involved with craft, they were they were pretty big, weren't they, in their day? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was the thing is all the competition guys, all the aerobatics guys, they, um, craft was a preference for most of those, uh, most of the top competition pilots, that, especially in aerobatics flying. So, uh, yeah, so even just being around the shop um, that we had uh, down in Geelong, there was always people uh, calling in. And, and as I said, when we, when we went to all the competitions, we used to go up to Kahuna and uh, race, pylon race up at Kahuna. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there was a, a lot of the people and even so P and darks, my dad was one of the founding members, um, when they moved. Um, so he, he had some of the original shares oh, in, uh, the P and darks club. So he had a, had a couple of shares there and when he moved out of, um, uh, Victoria, he offered them to me and at that stage, I wasn't back into, uh, era modeling. So it was during my sabbatical. So I, I didn't take him up on, on getting them, which I wish I would have now. Yeah. Yeah. You should have got them. Because they've gone up in, in value. I know that uh, some people said they paid $200 for their shares and now they're up at around $1,400, I think, I paid for my share. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, can't, I don't remember what that – I think they were 200 or 250 I, I can't remember exactly what Dad paid originally for them. But um, And even before that, the old um, the old field that was down at Police Paddocks. Um, so we used to plot pile and race there before they got kicked off that area and went out to Cadenia. See. Tell you what, it would have been an interesting time. That, that you know, was, was that the, the 70s? Yeah, so it was. We moved to Geelong. Dad started with Craft in 73. So it's, um, yeah, so 70s into the early 80s. And as I said, then um, it, it really became cars and RC car racing. And so Dad sort of gave up his pylon racing sort of around that time as well to, to, to pit for me as well. So we then sort of swapped over and, and 
staying in the RC hobby, but um, completely into the car side. Yeah, and there's a, what? So give me a time frame for the car car kind of stuff that you were doing. Yeah, so eighties, early eighties. So um, what was it? Eighty two, I think, was the Australian champs in Geelong, um, and then uh, eighty three in Tassie. So this is one eight scale on road. Um, so raced uh, raced in those. Won the Aussie champs in uh, eighty three, um, and then uh, and won New South Wales champs, I think, in eighty three or eighty four. Um, so raced, yeah, raced those, but also then the electrics came out and we started um, uh, doing off-road and on-road electric as well. But that sort of went for another 10 years up until sort of the the mid-90s, um, and that's when I sort of gave it away. Oh, I'll tell you, it was a good run in cars, and you were there sort of in that boom time of cars, weren't you? Oh, it was. It was. I, exciting I actually ended up running... Yeah, I ended up running the Australian Association, the ORCA, for the off-road cars. Oh, did you? So, yeah, we had about 2,000 members in Australia. Yeah, because that was, you know, I was still sort of, uh, it's you know, I was at school, obviously, in that, that era, and, and the, to me, RC cars were just the thing. And, yeah, you know, and I loved them. You know, we, my brother had a Hornet and... We said we organised yes. races yeah, the old school. Yeah, the hot, yeah, when grass the hot shot came out, everybody wanted the hot shot, and always wanted the, the boomerang. But um, yeah, it was just yeah, really, really good times. And I don't think we've even I don't think we're we've been able to replicate that era really, where RCK cars got into that mainstream kids kind of focus um, in that era. And um, yeah, and I, yeah, I suppose absolutely. The, you would have seen a lot of changes in the design of the gear as well through that era as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, it was. It was a good time to be in the hobby. Obviously, back then there was some, none of this two point four. So, like car racing and stuff like that, you were changing crystals um, um, in races because uh, you had to had to sort out all the frequencies all the time. Um, with the with the nitro um, cars. You'd end up with a lot of issues with um, if there was metal to metal noise, it'd actually go off the air at the end of the straight. <laughs> All these sorts of things that were, were were really challenging at the time, and and um, uh, I mean it was so big. We um, while I was running the Australian Association, we were able to rent out the exhibition buildings in Melbourne, and we built a purpose built track in the exhibition buildings alongside one of the big hot rod shows. And so we had one one whole section of the exhibition build the old exhibition buildings in Melbourne, um, and we as I said bought in I don't know how many um, cubic meters of granitic sand and built the track, um, and um, uh, built it indoors, raced over the weekend um, as the nationals, and then pulled it all apart um, a couple of days later, and we had over two hundred entries. Oh, that's crazy! That would have just been phenomenal. Uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, that's and, and that those peak times. So the, I mean, yeah. the said so the the number of people, and as you said, the psyche. I mean, um, uh, so I used to race. Uh, Mike Farnan and I used to race together. So my dad and Tony Farnan have been friends for years and years. And dad ended up working at Model Engines for quite a few years as well. But Mike and I used to race together. But also, you remember just from a 
talking about the public perception, the the the, the Brocky cars and that that they made um, in model engines, and they were advertised in sort of prime time on TV. Yeah, that's right. And things like that. It was just such a. It, it really was one of those things that um, that uh, took the imagination of the, the general public. Yeah, but it, it, it just, you know, the RC car scene is still there. Um, and and you know the rock crawling brigades can't come out. The scale rock crawlers yep. are quite interesting. Of course, we've got the on road stuff. Um, plenty of different off road kind of options now. The, the the cars seem to be a lot more robust than what they used to be. I remember, you know, driving the RC car out on the road, and if you if you hit the uh, the curb, that was it. The thing would be demolished. Uh, but nowadays, they just seem like you can do massive jumps with them, and they can handle everything. It's almost like something for everybody, really, when you talk about RC cars. Yeah, there is, and, and it's it's an easy entry point too. I think for a lot of people, the, the the it seems like a lot of kids end up with an RC car at some stage, and they're not that difficult. I mean, racing is difficult, racing and and competing, being consistent, but going and having fun with them, you can have a lot of fun with them. Yeah, well, my son's been through a few RC cars. Um, still, still got one. He's got a he's got a rock crawler that, that he likes using, but. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've had RC cars over the years and I get a little bit bored sometimes and I'm just like, you know, paddock bashing in a kind of way. But at one stage I did get an on-road um, touring car and um, when there used to be a, an indoor track here in Melbourne uh, that no longer exists and and I and I started to play around with that and I really enjoyed that challenge of driving around the track because it's a totally different, you know, you've got to be precise and controlled and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, something that I didn't mind but uh, ran out of time. Ran out of time. Yeah, I mean, racing is it, it is really good. It's it's a real adrenaline kick. Um, even though you're not sitting in the thing, actually putting yourself up against other people and and uh, the challenge is still there. And and I've seen people get so hot headed with uh, with car racing and blow a top and and just screaming at each other. And, and the dads is the is the pit off pitman quite often. We're getting abused by their kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's no different. I've been involved in full size racing, and um, yeah, you're right. There's not, you know, that buzz is still there, and it's it's racing's racing in a kind of way. Yeah, you're not sitting in it, but uh, it's it's interesting how many people that race RC cars really love full size racing as well, and some are in the industry and. And that kind of stuff, but um, but there's so much setup involved, you know, to get your to get your car yeah. to, to to perform well is is a real art. You know, we don't have that in in aero modelling as much, where we have to really play around with the, you know, there's not that many things to set up really in an aeroplane once you've got it flying okay. But with cars and your suspension setups and your ratios and tire choices and all that kind of stuff, oh, it's even wings, your, your bodies and all that kind of stuff, oh. Yeah, I managed. I managed to race in the worlds uh, in Sydney. We had the world champs came out for uh, off-road um, electric, and uh, I think it was about ninety-five or something like that, maybe in that era. Anyway, and that was sort of my last big event before I uh, gave it in. But it was it was also a big shock seeing what the international guys were doing and the factories were doing compared to what we were doing in Australia, and we thought we were doing well and. Um, I mean, uh, they they bought out full dynos and and all of this stuff that they were using with the motors, and it, it was just it was that extra level that that sort of in Australia we we hadn't been exposed to in the same way. When it becomes the world championships, and these guys are 
they're sort of racing for sheep stations. Well, they're, they're racing for the prestige of being able to sell more and more of their equipment because they've won the world champs. Um, it gets very serious. So, uh, and uh, as you said, set up, the, I mean, driver skills a lot, um, but then, yeah, ultimately you've got to have both. You've got to have the setup and the skill. But with aero modelling, I mean, pylon racing and aerobatics, I think those are, are quite similar to car racing in that you've got to have, um, you've got to have everything right up of scale in some ways as well, I guess. But um, yeah, competition is competition and uh, the pilot can do so much, but you've got to have the, the equipment set up right and working right. Otherwise, you're not, uh, you're not going to be able to, uh, to prevail. That's definitely true. Uh, I, I um, interviewed Chris Callow, who's you know, probably one of Australia's greatest oh, yes. pylon racers up in Queensland. And, and he just, it was an amazing interview because uh, it really gave me an insight into pylon racing because I knew what it was, of course, but I didn't really know the intricacies of it and the amount of engine development that they would do to just try yes. to get a fraction of a second faster was just phenomenal. It was just, could not believe how much effort they were going to with, with the engines. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what you need to do if you want to you know, compete at the top level. Exactly. Even back 20, well, what is it now, even more, 20, 30 years ago when my dad was doing it, um, that was actually what gave me some advantage with the car racing with the um, with the Nitro on-road was um, he'd been working and developing motors for his pylon racing. So he'd done a lot of work with um, dozens and dozens of motors trying to get peak performance and, and, and blueprinting them and working on the on the porting of them and playing with the skirts and all of this stuff. So he'd done a lot of work with engines. And so when we got into the cars, um, uh, he was always able to build a very fast but still reliable engine, which which made quite a big difference at the time. Well, I can see how you're saying how you got to a point where you almost got burnt out. And I think if you're competing at a top level, the, the level of commitment is is quite significant and it's hard to maintain that rage for such a long period of time. Was it just simply a case of just, I'm just over this, I just don't want to keep on doing this, it's just can't keep up kind of thing? Yeah, it, it, it just got to the point where, because to, to stay competitive, you've got to, you've got to put a lot of time into it as, as with anything, with anything, you've got to, you've got to do practice, you've got to, maintain the, the the cars you've got to try new equipment you've got to there's just so much to do and it sort of takes takes over your life you end up every weekend um doing something to do with the racing so you were either traveling to an event somewhere and and also with the cars the thing is there's so many different classes so at the same time i could be racing um, um buggies electric buggies one weekend and then electric on road or or, or nitro on road the next weekend and so if you sort of do that and you continually do that and traveling for all of these uh, different events it, it just got to the point where it uh, it just wore me out and I was just okay I'm done and I think it was like I was in my mid-20s um and and just decided no that's that's enough yeah yeah okay so then you took a bit of a break uh how long was the break in in RC yeah, so it was about around about twenty years. It was a it was a long break. Mm. It was a really long break. So what did you do? Time, what did you do in twenty years? Yeah, I, I know. it's it's it, it, it's strange, isn't it? Sort of. I, I think back on it now. I so I had motorbikes as the thing. So oh, there so right. motorbikes no, became. We approve of motorbikes here at yeah. Flat Out RC. That's that's my other newfound passion. 
Oh, good, good. Yeah, I've, I still, I've pretty much my whole life, I've had motorbikes, uh, on-road motorbikes. So um, I think I, dad bought me my first one when I was like 17 um, or 17 and a half in Victoria. We were able to get our license. And I, I started uni at that stage at, at 17 and a half. So I couldn't get my car license. And so dad took me out and um, uh, he used to ride when he was younger. So we, um, but uh, he needed to retake his license. So we both went out and got our learners and and so I was able to start riding and pretty much from then till now, I've had maybe two years of my life where I haven't had a motorbike. So, so I still keep it as a hobby now, but um, uh, yeah, for, so for those years, I sort of, motorbikes became the big hobby. Um, used to go down and do some track days and uh, just had a uh, rides on the weekend, uh, met up with a lot of different people and, and, and riding around. Um, and then partway through that, I ended up um, uh, changing jobs and um, I, I was working for CSIRO for, for sort of from my early early 20s through to my into my 30s. And um, then I uh, moved to a company called Ericsson, uh, which does uh, telephony. So um, it happens to be headquartered in Sweden. And after about a year of joining the company, I was offered a, a, um, to move and, and take a, uh, an expat role over in Sweden working at the head office. So disappeared over there for five years, um, bought a bike while I was over there, um, found my wife over there and we had our son over there and got married over there. Um, and after about five years there, um, I, we, we were sort of given the option if we wanted to stay um, uh, stay as a local or we could come back to Australia. And my wife hadn't tried Australia, so uh, she'd been out for a couple of holidays. But um, other than that, uh, she said, OK, let's, let's try it. So we came back into Melbourne um, and uh, that was about 20 years ago now. Um, so... So it's, um, and then after being here a few years, I got back into bikes and then I uh, sort of got the, got the, the, the starting uh, again with the aero modeling. I sort of uh, found out that there was a local shop um, and sort of piqued my interest again. And uh, uh, so this is about 14 years ago, something like that. Um, and when uh, when I decided to sort of get back into modelling, I I had at one stage managed to get a quick flight on a helicopter with some training gears on years ago. And my dad actually did helicopters at the Nationals back in the days when it was no gyros, fixed pitch. The absolute hardest thing you could do was to fly a helicopter back in those days, back in the, uh, again, the 70s. Um, and um, so when I came back to, to modelling, I was I, I wanted something that was challenging, um, and that would be something that I thought I would I would struggle to master, even if I did it for the rest of my life. And so uh, so I sort of decided to go back into helicopters, and um, and uh, so started with a little um, coaxial helicopter and found the indoor club that was flying and uh, went and tried that. And at the same time, I ended up actually buying a couple of planes, indoor planes back and, and sort of trying to do that beside the helis. But I found that trying to learn helicopters at the same time as trying to do a little bit of sort of basic 3D 
um, aircraft stuff sort of hovering and and starting to get into rolling maneuvers with with um, with the planes, it, it wasn't compatible trying to do both at the same time. So I uh, I dropped the, the 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 planes and just went full on into helicopters, and uh, pretty much haven't looked back. Well, so now I know you as a heli guy, and we're going to talk um, a fair bit about helis. But uh, you really came back into the hobby when that heli scene was really starting to rise, didn't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. This is – so I came back, I think it was 2007 or something like that, I, I started with the Hallies. Um, and the sort of the 2010, 12, 14 were the massive days oh, for Hallies. Oh, great days. So, yeah, in Australia we were having – there was there was um, uh, meets where there was uh, 100, 100 pilots, 120 pilots. That really, yeah, it, it took off and globally as well. In in the US at Urcha, the biggest uh, helicopter event they have in the, in, in the world, they had over a thousand pilots. Um, it's just uh, it, it was amazing for a few years. Their helis became the in thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and it it, it really uh, blossomed as a as a as a hobby. Um, and it was yeah, it was a great time to be there. I mean, the, we we used to do. Uh, the big events, so uh, what was Wagga, um, Halley Heatwave um, is still around, but uh, Coffs Harbour was another really big one. I made it up there once in, in the heyday. Um, but, yeah, there was, there was some really uh, lots of people doing it and really had a, had a great buzz buzz to the, uh, to the hobby. Yeah, it was. It was well, I, I got back into the hobby via Halley's in 2007, bought an, a line T-Rex 450. And because I fell in yep. love with this idea of hey, you don't need a runway, <laughs> you don't need as much space, kind of thing to just have a bit of a play around. And I've still got the heli; it's still flyable. Um, but can you believe I bought it? And then my son was born. I didn't. I, I built it pretty much, and then I didn't touch <laughs> it for about four years, four or five yep. years after four four years of I think it was after I got the heli, and I took it down to Arc RC and. Uh, Back in the old store in Collingwood down here, and and I, I said to Aiden, I got this heli. I just want someone to test fly it. And he went, okay, because I said I don't. I've never done. I've never flown the thing. I've been practicing on the sim and whatever. Anyway, I'm not. I'm not joking. The difference between me flying it four years earlier and flying it four years later was a two minute flight. He took it out the front yep. of the shop, <laughs> took it off, and went. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, yeah, everything's working in the right directions. Uh, just got to adjust something. Yep, good to go. There you go. I mean, what? That was it. <laughs> I should have done that earlier. But, um, but, yeah, that was like I just remember the forums and there was this big buzz uh, going on around then. And so uh, what was that? What was the heli that got you into it after the coaxial stuff? You know, what was that your first, uh, you know, full? Well, via, via the same guy you just mentioned, Aiden, yeah, and uh, Arc RC. So uh, even before he had Collingwood, he used to work out of his mum's uh, basement. Really? Um, and so I started off with a Dragonus was the name of the helicopter, which was a 450 oh, size. Oh, yes, I know. They were a bit different looking. Yes, they yeah. were. They, they, had, they had a different look to them. Um, still a flybard 450. Um, and that's what Aiden was uh, had, was bringing in at the time in the early days. He started bringing the Dragonus Hallies. And 
the thing was in those days, you know, lipos were so expensive, um, and and sort of to 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 you stayed at the 450 size because otherwise the battery packs were so expensive that, that it was hard to afford it. So like 2200 milliamp hour three S's, and they were sort of 150 dollars or more a battery if I remember back and this is as I said back back 15 well, 13, 14 15 years ago so yeah those um those days were, were good so yeah I used to fly fly with Aiden and, and some of the other guys so I, we used to run the indoor um in Donvale Donvale that's right um, yeah. yep so Aiden, Aiden ran the indoor there so I used to go to that um uh, every fortnight we used to have a indoor meeting there um and so I'd fly there and then the rest of the time I'd be out in um, in on the ovals or on a park somewhere and learning how to hover this thing and, and, and then eventually started getting to the point where I could do circuits and nearly lost it one time into the distance where it sort of got away from me a bit and was uh, was heading out uh, heading out over a road. Luckily I got yeah. it back. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of the, the days before I got back into clubs and, and, and things like that. So um, sort of had, had been flying uh, flying for a few years um, and not progressing a lot, but sort of just getting to the point where I could I could fly the heli around upright and and, and be reasonably confident and few crashes and uh, uh, the the pain of putting back a fly bar to heli putting it back together and, and getting everything straight and yeah, resetting it up right. is uh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the uh, so, uh, were you on the sim at all practicing? So I did have one of the early versions of Real Flight, like I think it was version three or two, two point five or something. So it, it there was a little bit there with the sim. I mean, it wasn't something that you could um, uh, use to learn fully, but it it did give you sort of the beginning of being able to do your orientations. So it worked well enough to do that, but still, as, as it is today, I mean, you can sim and you can sim and you can sim, but actually getting airtime um, and part of it, that's due to just the, the, the confidence level that you have on the sim compared to the confidence level in real life and, and, and getting those, all of your moves to be automatic and, and reactions rather than thinking about things. Um, you, you, that still has to be developed in in real life, I, I think. So sim's a really important tool um, and really help nowadays, especially. But um, you still have to spend the time on the sticks to 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 learn to fly properly. So you're out there flying your little 450, and we all know if you fly helis, all roads lead to bigger helis. What was your next heli oh, after yeah. that first one? Yeah, then um, I got. Uh, into what they it was a, a fairly new heli at the time which was msh which um the the original msh 500 um uh, that they made which was actually a sub 500s like the align 500s which are a bit smaller they're three 325 millimeter blades not 500 millimeter blades but they were classed as 500s um so i i ended up with one of those the protoss um and still had the fly bar um, and ended up with two of them <laughs> after a while, as you do. Um, and um, then finally, uh, Flybarless came out. So I 
sort of jumped in with both feet to the fly barless and um, uh, got a skookum, which uh, unfortunately now they're doing, they're, they've sort of dropped out of the hobby and they're doing um, uh, UAV type stuff now. But at the time, the, the skookum was, a, was a, a good little fly barless unit. Um, and so I managed to bought the conversion kit for one of my Hallies and went from sort of doing circuits and everything upright and within a couple of flights with the fly barless, I was uh, able to do my first flips and, and starting to do loops and rolls and, and, and basic aerobatics um, uh, quite quickly after moving to the, to the fly barless. Well, it was good when the fly barless came in and then there was this so much banter about the different solutions that were out there and... I remember you know, reading all about them, and and they just kept on improving, improving really over time. Uh, so then, after the five hundreds, what was the next step? Because as I said, we always keep on getting bigger. What? Yeah, what I tried to do with myself was I. So the want is always there to get the next bigger heli, but I I sort of took it as a reward. So for me, when. Um, sort of as I made steps, I then sort of said, yes, I can go to the next bigger heli. So my next one was a Logo 600, which I still have. Um, it's the only one of those helis that I still have uh, in my possession. And um, uh, for me, that was a, a big heli. And I'd sort of got to the point where I was, um, as I very confident in all my upright flight, starting to work on my inverted flight so I was able to hover inverted uh, nose in and so that's the point at where I sort of rewarded myself and went to the to the at that stage that my big heli which was a 600 um and uh gee I, I mean again each time you step up the helis it's it's a real experience when you move from uh, a 450 to a 500 and then a 500 to a 600 not only the 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 level of intimidation you feel through these bigger blades, bigger halley, but also the um, the smoothness of the halley, the stability of the halley. Every time you move up those steps, it it the hellies feel better and better. Um, they they fly better. They they, they handle the wind better. Um, but on the reverse side, they also cost a lot more when you crash them. That's yes. It's always the problem. That's why I started flying helis. Um, well, I bought the 450, but as I said, I didn't fly it, but I ended up getting like some little blade uh, helis. And the first plane I hovered was this little, I can't remember the exact name, but I still got it somewhere, a uh, little blade, you know, little... The BL2 or the brush? The, the, it, was the, it was the one before that, the, uh, the one before the brushless. Oh, MCPX. MCPX. I had the MCPX, which yeah. was a tiny little thing. And I remember um, yep, taking I off. That was the first heli I flew, actually. And, and I'd been practicing on the simulator or whatever, and um, I flew that. And then flying the 450 versus that felt, oh, this is great. It's so stable. And then I got a 550, a, a T-Rex 550, and I flew that. And I'm like, this thing is hovering itself almost. It's getting easier and easier. But my mind was playing tricks with me. When I got to the 550, I was like, oh, there's a lot more at stake here than the little blade heli, the little plastic thing. Yes. If I break it, you know, if it hits the ground, it might not even break. More often than not, it didn't. Uh, but the um, but yeah, I exactly relate to to that feeling. But yeah, and that actually holds a lot of people back. That yeah. people, they, yep. they, you 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 actually you can do something with your little four fifty or your little um, MCPX or, or or whatever baby helicopter, 
But when you try to do it on the bigger heli, your brain freezes. It, 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 it's actually, it's a, it's a really strange phenomenon, people, you, you get. And I think it's one of the things with, with younger kids learning, they don't have that same issue. Um, an adult, it's, it's something to do with our, the, the, the way a lot of people have said having that that expense and all of this stuff in the air, you 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 sort of second guess yourself and, and rather than sort of doing things naturally, you you do something that you could do on the scene easily, you try and do it in real life and you crash. You like you could be flipping on the sim and taught yourself to flip and then you go to do it in real life and you freeze. It's, and you know what the crazy thing is like flying 3D with uh, a fixed wing is that why is it that I can get on the simulator and I can fly low and do you know knife edge circuits, you know that kind of stuff and hover two millimeters off the deck kind of thing? But then when you get into the full size, the real thing and the real expense, uh, it's like no, no, I've got to keep it a bit higher. It, the skill is there; I can do it. I, yes. I my fingers know what to do. It's just that mental barrier, and like you said, younger kids. I was with my uh, on the sim last night actually with my sim buddy Brad Worm. And uh, I don't know, he was talking about something and he came up with something that was, you know, he's a young kid and he came up with something that was just, didn't make sense. And I said to him, and he was adamant he was right. I can't remember what he was, what we were talking about, but I know he was adamant he was right. And I said, look, I said, Wormy, going to give you a little tip. Your brain isn't fully developed yet. It's going to be fully developed by about the age of 28. So in this case, I reckon you're wrong because your brain hasn't fully developed because it doesn't make sense what you're talking about. But he can, he can go out and fly like he does on the sim. You know, he doesn't have yes. that, that fear factor. And he knows the value because he, he, he goes to, you know, get money. You know, he does he works to buy the aeroplanes and, and he buys good stuff and big extreme flight, you know, 100 cc's and that kind of thing. But, um yeah, it, and I've seen it in car racing as well, racing against young kids. They're like, what? Oh, it's wet. We've got to, ride, we've got to drive slower now. Yeah, yeah, it's dangerous in the wet. Oh, is it? Uh. But um to be young again. To be young, it would yeah. be great. You know, I'd be a great pilot if I really, you know, wind back that clock oh, forty years. Yeah, exactly. I would have, would have loved it to have been able to start in my teens um, or even earlier with Hallies because now the plasticity of my brain is so bad. It it takes me so long to learn new stuff when I'm flying the Hallies, and so the last orientation. Um, so with Hallies, we talk about the different. Uh, orientations of flight so because uh, different to the plane you've, you've got forwards and backwards upright and inverted and they're the four main ones I mean then you also have the same thing with side-on flight so when you start doing funnels and things like this you you actually then have to learn the reactions of upright inverted um, moving sideways the heli flying sideways but um, uh, sort of to learn backwards inverted which was the last of the first sort of main four I learned I think it took me two years to learn it. I reckon a, 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 a 10-year-old, 12-year-old could learn it in, in in a month, if that. That's the thing with, with flying a heli. Like you said, when you came back to the hobby, you're looking something that was going to be a, a lifelong sort of uh, uh, journey to attain, you know, the skill. And it. I always say to people, helis play with your mind. With, with flying a plane is so much easier because it goes in one direction. Yeah. You've got this big wing that sort of can tell you whether it's, you know, what's going on, you know, how the plane's reacting in a kind of way. Uh, but when you go and try to do, like you said, say reverse flight, uh, inverted, that is totally playing with your brain. 
totally and utterly playing yes. with your brain because now everything is turned on its head. Everything that you knew is now turned on its head and now I have to become comfortable with that. And that's, you know, that's why we see some of these young bucks, you know, that uh, pick it up so quickly and uh, oh, it just yeah. it baffles me. It, the only problem I had with Hellies is that it, it – it, You've got to break that barrier. You've got to keep on. You've got to keep on pushing through with a heli to get to a certain level where you're pretty competent. And in, in, you know, there's eighty percent of your flights are going to end up in a in a decent landing and not end up in pieces and replacing blades and doing all that kind of stuff and tails and all that. But um, but I always couldn't relax. I always felt I was one move away because. The ease in which you can crash a helicopter is pretty good. You know, you lose oh, orientation a bit, and that's it. <laughs> You're gone. It's it's absolutely the blink of an eye, and that's that's one of the things with helis is that um, everything has to become a reaction. You you have not got time to think. So um, when I so so moving when I first learn a new orientation when I was first learning, I would have sort of a mental feedback of. So when I learned inverted nose in, it's hovering to start with, which was sort of one of the first in, 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 inverted, it was I knew if I if I pushed my elevator stick forward, the heli would move away from me and flip upright. And so I, I had that in my mind and, and, and pull um, uh, negative collective and push forward on the elevator stick. And so I used to say to myself, okay, just and, and, and sort of as a mantra, um, and while you're learning those new orientations, you have to have something like that. So same when you're doing sort of circuits. Um, this when you Because you use a lot of rudder with a helicopter, it's quite different to doing circuits with a plane. I mean, you use rudder with a, with a plane, but not to the same extent. With a, with a heli, if you don't use the rudder, um, and, and the rudder really controls the turns a lot. So you, you have if you're sort of flying upright forward, when you want to turn left, both of your sticks go left. So your ailerone goes left and your um, rudder goes left. Um, but then, uh, okay, when you start flying inverted, your sticks now go in opposite directions. So if you want to turn right, your aileron goes to the right, but your rudder has to go to the left. So you're, you're now doing sticks apart to go right and sticks together to go left, whereas upright, um, normal flying, both your sticks go one way, both your sticks go the other. Then when you flip it in, when you start doing backwards flight, that swaps around again. So if you're doing um, uh, inverted flying backwards, your sticks, your rudder and aileron again move in the same direction. So they both move left or both move right. But if you then start doing forward flight inverted, you are back again to sticks together or sticks apart. So it's <laughs> when, when you first learn, you, you sort of ha have this thing where you have to talk to yourself to try and try and say, okay, sticks together, sticks apart, stick, and, and these sorts of things. But then once you get over that hump, you don't think about it. I, I, flipping the heli around, get flying backwards, forwards, all of these things, I I never think about orientations anymore. Never think about. You don't have time to. If you're thinking about what you have to do, you you're going to end up in failure. But 
as my, my good friend Ido Segi used to say, it's all about building up the neural pathways. And the way that you do that is through repetition. And you get to a point where your muscles and your brain know what to do instinctively. And like you said, that leads to that pure ability to react to, you know, yes. rather than have to think through everything. But, um, but the, uh, yeah. That's what makes, you're saying before you felt like you couldn't relax. Yeah. Now that I have that automation in place, I, I can relax and fly. I can talk. I can. I don't don't need to be concentrating on flying. Um, it's, it's it's one of those things that again, once you get that over that level where it becomes automatic, then you don't have to concentrate on the flying anymore, and you can use your your other brain functions, and so it becomes more relaxing. Um, so I think that's that's the trick with with heli flying. Again, if you're within your comfort zone, um, then you can be quite relaxed, but the trouble is you always want to push past your comfort zone mm, because you're sure. trying to learn things and, yeah. Well, it's just, uh, yeah, time on the sticks really makes a big difference with Hallie's. Uh, and I, I did a lot on the That's simulator. I was playing around the sim a fair bit to, you know, I, my default move, if all else fails, just go into a tail in hover and uh, get yourself uh, yep. sorted, sorted and get back into it. But then I know that, um, you know, we... <laughs> We talked about this rise of the heli scene, and it was—it's still to this day in all my time of you know era modelling since I got back into it in two thousand and seven. Uh, it was the coolest thing. It, like it, I remember going to remember the freestyle flyers used to. What was the event called that they used to? They ran it a couple of years. Uh, um, positive pitch. Positive pitch. What a cool event! That was a party. That was like going to a party where the helicopters were just the features, and they would do like drag races and all that kind of stuff and it, it, the crowd was there the music was pumping and i still think that helis just look cool there is just something of you know, the mechanical nature of them they get my juices flowing when i say heli so to go to an event like that that was just awesome event helis everywhere big stuff and really good pilots it was just so motivational why did it all stop so yeah, look, it's a hard one. I mean, freestyle flyers, in, in the end, we we wound the club up last year um, because we got finally to the point where we'd, we'd become such a small club um, and even the other club in Melbourne, which has been the big Halley club, uh, Melbourne Halley, has also, they've dropped from having over 100 members down to down to having sort of 15 or 20 members as well. Um, this, I think there's two parts. I mean, the, the events... The events dropped off as the participation dropped off. Yeah, it all feeds in um, uh, Yeah, a lot of people blame drones. I So I think they have a little bit to do with it, but I don't think they're the whole picture. I mean, uh, and, and I mean, I when I look around, I don't see young people coming into the hobby. Um, there's, there's the occasional younger person coming into Halley's, but... Um, even when I travel overseas and and that there's a handful of younger people, but um, the old crowd is actually the staple of the of the hobby with Hallies at the moment. So um, I think there's there's some of that. Um, yeah, it's um, in the events. I mean, positive pitch. It, it was just it was a it, <laughs> to be honest, it was a lot of work to organise. Um, so uh, each time we ran it, it took, it drained the few of us that actually organised the event. Um, and again, it's one of those things that we were a club of, of sort of twenty people running this big event and 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 having 
I think we had uh, 80 or 100 people to one of them. Um, and the effort of actually the same people ended, ending up doing the work each time um, got to be a lot. Um, and because that that event again, it was done quite differently to a lot of the other heli events. We, as you said, the having the the, the music and, and and DJs playing, and and we put a lot of effort into sort of making it entertaining. Um, and and even the competitions, as you said, some of the competitions we we purposely tried to set them up so they were quite entertaining and, and really really got the crowd's interest and everything. But um, it it takes a lot of effort to do that, and so. After we'd run it for a few years, it, it got to the point where we just, the, the same people had been organising it and just, again, a little bit of burnout, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's ho- hobby-wise, hobby was dropping off at the same time. Well, because, yeah, it, 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 when you've got events that sort of hinge on a couple of people that really got to make the effort to put in, it's not sustainable. It always ends up falling by the wayside, you know, that... I always say if you're going to build an event, you've got to build it in a way um, and have a structure that, can be replicated by other people so it's not just hinged on individuals knowledge or effort you know a bit like we see the shepherd and mammoth event can keep on going on and on and on because there's a group of them that organize it and they pass it down you know the group they're organizing it say this year well it's not on this year but the the, the group that organized it this year were different to the group that organized it 10 years ago kind of thing uh but it's just part of the club but uh it was it, it was almost like a quite a quick demise i saw a thought of with hallies and it also impacted the industry greatly because a lot of the names yes. that were back that we knew back then, um, you know, some are still going, but a lot fell by the wayside. And obviously that was also in response to the decline. But then at the same time, we saw a whole bunch of new brands come out. So what was happening then? Like what was, what was you know, how did that all happen? <laughs> Yeah, look, it, it's an interesting one seeing the new brands come out. Um, so SAB is the classic example where they weren't on the scene um, back. Back they sort of came on towards that tail down in the in the um, Hallies, and they came out with quite a different helicopter. Um, and the, the 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 Goblin helicopter with the solid boom and and um, the, quite a different looking helicopter. Um, and so they, they've been so successful. Um, they have, um, and if anything, they, they now, they, they produce a new, a new helicopter. It feels like every couple of months they have a new helicopter coming out. So, so they've done really well. But, yeah, we have lost. Um, there's been a lot of sort of what were the big industry um, standards. So, like, miniature aircraft uh, went by the wayside. Um, some of the Japanese uh, brands uh, dropped off, so Thunder Tiger sort of dropped off and half disappeared, and and JR the same. Um, uh, so there's been a lot of Hallies, and and so some of them have made some minor comebacks, like um, Miniature Aircraft. Uh, there was a German company have sort of picked up and are now making the Hallies again, um, and Thunder Tiger, I think. Um, I don't think they're making any, but JR are now starting to make a few of their Hallies again. Um, but other other brands that sort of were were big at the time, so Compass uh, unfortunately disappeared. At the moment, Synergy, which was one of the other really popular ones in Australia, they've had problems and effectively are, are in in uh, hiatus at the moment, trying to restart. 
Um, yeah, so it's one of those things that I think, again, the, the the decrease in the numbers of people has been quite significant over the last few years. So in Australia, we've gone from events where you've had over 100 people to, I think, events, I mean, COVID impacted as well, but down to sort of 20 people, um, 20 pilots turning up to an event from 100, 150. What do you think the average age is? What's the average age at some of those events? It's probably 50. <laughs> Because the, the, I was, as you're talking, I was just thinking about it, that back in that boom time, it, there was quite a young demographic. And one thing I've learned through doing this podcast and hearing people's stories is that the majority of people when they, it's mainly guys, you know, let's just be honest, it's mainly guys, uh, that they get to that sort of late teenage years, the 17, 18s, and off, often drift out of the hobby. And, yes. um, and then... Uh, I've got other interests, you know, girls, cars, generally the, the most common thing. Uh, and then they generally come back. And when you think about it, a lot of that that gang was sort of early 20s, I'd say, um, yep. that were really driving a lot of the progression in the hobby, in that side of it. And they may have reached that sort of their hiatus time <laughs> and and uh, fallen by the wayside because they, they, were, they were great pilots. And actually you mentioned earlier about the drone thing. I actually believe that that whole drone racing scene is a brand new category with a whole different set and dynamic in it. That those people that were that are in that side of the hobby, ninety nine percent of them were not flying any other RC stuff. They basically yes. came in directly off the internet into into that thing, and it was interesting to watch say the MAAA and how they tried to sort of embrace the FPV drone thing, thinking that they might come across and fly fixed wing and all that. Uh-uh. They're not coming across. They're, they're doing their thing. And I think that the numbers were overinflated as to how many people actually went and took up drone racing, yeah. really. Because if it was such a big thing, we'd see lots of different clubs and all that kind of stuff. And there's like two of them, maybe two or three, maybe in Melbourne max, that we that we know of, and the amount of people that are actually physically racing is probably not as much, and and a lot of the industry, you know, hobby shops and stuff like that, sort of got out of it because there's no money in selling FPV drone stuff. If you, you know, the margins are, you know, the margins might be okay, but the value is so low that you, you know, you're working hard to make ten bucks. Yeah, it's yeah, it's difficult. I think, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's one of the things when people say that that FPV and drones killed the hobby. I think that or killed killed Hallies or, or, or reduced also fixed wing, but I, I think you you hit the point there, which it didn't steal that many people from the hobby, but what happened was new entrants coming into the hobby, I think, went more in that direction um, against Hallies definitely because Hallies Hallies have such a steep learning curve and such a high expense. Um, and for people coming fresh into into the hobby, um, yes, it's expensive to get a set of FPV glasses. But if you once you set up with your first few races, you you can you can actually break props every weekend and, and stuff like that. And it's 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 costing you very small amounts of money, and and the the electronics are cheaper, the the whole setup is cheaper. So it's actually quite a reasonable entry point to get into the hobby is to go into fpv and 
I, I mean, I started a little bit of FPV as well when it became a fad. I, I joined um, with the guys that are actually at GMAC now, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the club there. So I've used to fly with Darren French and the guys uh, when they first set up. And so we'd be going into car parks late at night, um, flying FPV around uh, around car parks in in and around Melbourne. And uh, I, I mean, it's it's different. It's a bit of fun and, and it is a bit like this pod racing thing. But I think you're right. I think that the... the the, it didn't really steal people, but it, it found new people, and and they sort of went into that area, and and they may not have come into to Halley's, they may have gone into fixed wing, but um, it, it's sort of that that new entry people. I think that that um, a lot of them ended up, at, and again, it was a fad, like you're talking about the making the money. I mean, I know a lot of the the people that were working with FPV. I mean. This week, this motor is the hot one to have, and then next week, there's a different motor that, that becomes the hot one. And there's so much development in that space, but it's it. The thing is, for me, is that like I love FPV. I've got FPV gear, um, like yep. flying FPV because, like you said, it's just a different experience, and it's a good experience. I like trying, you know, yeah. different things with RC, and it and it it, it is enjoyable. It's it keeps on changing, and it's not. I don't think compared to flying helis, I always say helis is the hardest thing to master. To master a, an FPV drone is not as hard because you have electronics really helping you, and you know there's a little bit of skill when you're flying in tight spaces, and if you're racing, you know like Thomas Bitmarter, I just I don't know how that guy can. I, I can't keep up. My 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 vision just yeah. can't keep up with the pace. He's just out of this world the way that he flies, and a great bloke as well. He can fly fixed wing as well, but. To fly helis did take a bit of um, a bit of effort, and I wonder, you know, if you if we look backwards from the peak, we saw the advent of like the toy heli. You know, but like people started making these little foamies, and it was like yes, it was like every kid at some point in time because um, at the supermarkets Picos. they'd be selling them. You know, um, yeah, yeah, the twenty dollar twenty dollar helis. People were getting them for Christmas. Yeah, little. Picos and stuff like that that uh, you'd you'd fly around fly around the house and crash into a few things and pick it up yeah. and try again and that, and we, I don't know whether that helped you know but it'd be interesting to see fast forward in five ten years time to see where we are with FPV and whether that demographic which is again a predominantly young demographic have their hiatus because they found cars and other interests and blah 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 um, and had to you know get serious about work or whatever. But you know, you never know. I hope it doesn't. You know, because I'd love to see all aspects of RC flourish. But um, yeah, there's a really big, big slump. But out of that slump, what you, what you've seen is this avid group of RC heli enthusiasts. And what I've noticed though as well is that there's there's other people that may have dabbled in it a little bit back then. Um, that you know, like at the club that I'm at, the amount of fixed wing guys that actually do have a heli as well just is mind-boggling that there's so many yes. of them that are like oh yeah i've got my heli here today as well and i'm like oh i didn't know you know greg lep i didn't know you flew helis oh yeah no i fly helis love the things and then stevie melkman pulls out his heli oh yeah no, i've got a few helis i love flying them and he's having a bit, bit of a bash on the runway uh that it's really a, an avid group um now technology we see technology advance in a lot of different areas, and especially when we had the peak of helis, we saw a lot of um, you know changes. What's really changed in the last sort of ten years as far as um, you know RC heli componentry and 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 that kind of stuff, electronics? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the main thing, obviously, we talked about before was was fly barless. I mean, going from having a tail gyro to having a full um, three-axis uh, gyro in the heli, it doesn't, so it doesn't make the heli necessarily easier to fly. It, it doesn't make the heli fly itself, but it's like stability in the aircraft. It makes it fly better um, and it makes it more accurate. Um, so that's been one of the big things. And, and I guess the other major change that's happened in the last few years is rescue. So the capability to have a switch or a button that you can push and it, in most cases, um, takes the heli back to an upright um, orientation. It, it doesn't do like a GPS hold and stop the heli where it is, but if you're learning helis and you get to that point where you're pushing yourself and you mix up a, an input or you lose orientation, the, the ability to be able to push a button and have the heli flip back to being upright, and it can still be moving away from you or moving at speed, but effectively it moves into an upright orientation. It gives you that time to be able to recover the heli. Um, so that's been a really big thing, I think. And I, I think for a lot of people, it's reduced the amount of crashing that, that people have been doing as they start to progress in the hobby because they have rescue there. And even if they only use it as a safety blanket and, and don't use it in, in real life very often, it's, it, that's, had a, that's had quite a marked impact on, on um, helis. Yeah. Um, I like the sound of that. That's, that's what I need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, even even the blades. If you go and buy some of the blade helis now, um, they've got rescue. So um, if you sort of get out of shape anywhere, you can push a button. And um, they said it, it doesn't kill the momentum of the heli. So if it's travelling at a speed away from you or towards you or whatever, what it does do though is flip it upright and level it out. So then you've got a chance to sort of straighten it out and and, and get back on an even keel and take control again. Mm. Um, and and they it, most of them are set up so they also add positive pitch at the same time. So when you, if the heli's heading towards the ground and you pull rescue, it not only flips it back upright, but it'll also sort of um, push it away from the ground. Yeah, so, idea. so that's it's. It, I think it's a little bit. It's a little bit hard sometimes that, as a as a heli instructor, I don't like seeing people using it every flight. <laughs> If 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 you've got if you're to the point where you're trying stuff and having to use rescue every flight to to rescue your heli, you're probably pushing too hard because occasionally rescue doesn't work. Um, so sometimes it'll rescue on a big angle or the because it's done with accelerometers and they sort of lose what they're doing or and 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 it can also I think be dangerous. I've seen it happen once where. A guy sort of was was doing this, hit rescue, and and the Halley's effectively rescued and gone back over the pits, over the back of his oh, head. Yeah. And and also another one where a where a guy hit rescue and he sort of was was using it to stabilize the Halley while, while he looked at his transmitter. And he rescued the Halley far away from himself. So it ended up that he no longer could see the orientation and had a flyaway with the Halley. Um, so, so it, it, it's one of those things that I think needs to be tempered a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's, if it's used, if it's used in the right way, it can be a great training aid. Um, and to sort of save a, 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 the occasional thing where you get, get 
brain fade or, or put in a wrong control or you lose the orientation of the heli. But as I said, if you're having to use it every flight or even every time you go out, then yeah, you're, you're, you're <laughs> flying in advance of where you should be. Yeah. What about... So, um, so, so that's... Yeah, sorry. You go. I, I was going to say, yeah, so so fly ballast, that's a big one. Motors, batteries, speedies. I mean, um, speed controllers have, from a reliability perspective, moved on in leaps and bounds. Um, they're so solid now um, uh, that, I mean, I remember going to watch Global 3D, the, 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 uh, effectively the World Championship, not the FAI World Championship, but the Freestyle World Championship over in the Netherlands. And um, back in, I think it was 2016 or something like that, and heaps of guys were having their motors, the speed controllers shut down on them and halfway through competition and, and all of this. Um, and it's now got to the point where um, even with sort of really powerful motors and, and good strong batteries and pulling several hundred amp peaks, um, the speed controllers are, are, are pretty much bulletproof now. Um, so that's been a big, a big improvement. Battery tech, same as for, for planes. The thing with helis is, is we use the batteries as hard as sort of the the, the, the um, uh, sort of most demanding type aircraft yeah, applications. Right. So so we need high C values because um, uh, the pro pilots, they, they will run through a 12S 5,000 or even 55,000 milliamp hour pack in three to three and a half minutes. So that's the the the, the, the the absolutely pound them and get them hot. I mean, if you fly, so I fly more sports. Um, I mean, I fly 3D, but 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 I call it old man 3D. So it's it's actually it's like um, um, airplane aerobatics, but I do it also backwards and inverted, like backwards inverted as well as backwards up to upright. So I'll do a lot of loops and rolls, but as I said, do them do a do a backwards inverted loop and and backwards rolls and and stuff like that. So, um, uh, but because I fly lower head speed, I don't put anywhere near the stress on the batteries or the motor. But I fly for a longer period as well. Um, but but definitely in competition and for the guys that are really pushing hard 3D, um, as I said the, the the battery tech giving higher C's has had a big difference. The motors, um, again, there's a lot of hand-wound, single-wind, single, single, um, uh, single strand motors that, that really put in performance. So um, the performance of the Halleys has, has moved forward in leaps and bounds as well. Um, rotor blades as well, the, the technology in the blades um, has moved on. Um, so not just moving from sort of wood to carbon, but um, the aerodynamics, the weighting, um, even the blade plan form with some of the newer blades um, uh, having um, different cords through the width of the, the length of the blade, um, those also have quite an impact on, on performance of the helis. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of there's been a lot of things in the last 10 years that have actually progressed the heli quite a, the heli um, uh, hobby quite a lot. And I think a lot of people, um, that maybe got disheartened in the past with helis um, would find that um, fly ballast is much easier to put together. The reliability of the helis themselves is, is much better. Um, so uh, you, you sort of build, if you build a heli well, 
Um, you can fly it for, for 100, 150 flights before you need to do any maintenance on it. Um, and then it might be the matter of just changing a belt or, or, or two and, and, and re-greasing dampers. So, um, so yeah, it has moved on quite a lot in, in technology. Um, uh, the, the, a lot of the Hallies are really bulletproof now as well. So in, in the days gone by, if you put sort of a more aggressive motor in a Halley or you pushed it too hard, you could strip gears or, or strip the, the, the tail drive. Now they're again all the Hallies that are made are pretty much bulletproof. Um, all of the major brands, and um, you can you can abuse them pretty much, mm. and they won't fail. Yeah, I think that's um, yeah that reliability factor is um, is massive because like when you look at a heli that's doing hard three D, you just think this thing is being hammered, and you need to have a pretty robust platform to. Uh, to be able to withstand that kind of stuff. Now, with that decline of the with that this category, even though we've still got the avid uh, flyers there, what I've noticed is the change in the industry as far as the shops that are around and that kind of stuff. That you know we used to see the likes of an RKC that were really big in the heli heli era, to now almost what I call the cottage industries where uh, people just started businesses on the side. Uh, selling RC Heli stuff, bringing in some of the new brands and that kind of stuff. Now, that's something you've done, isn't it? Yep, yep. And, um, no, I think you're right. I mean, back in the earlier days, every hobby shop had a Heli section. So you, you drop into a hobby shop and they would have some Hallies in there, even if even if it's mainly um, uh, aircraft flyers at their, at their local field, they would still have some Hallies in there. Um as the hobby shops have also decreased a little bit, Hallies have become so much of a niche that um, most, a lot of the hobby shops just don't even carry Hallies anymore. So the whole model of distributor bringing in a, a brand and then selling it out to a lot of different retail shops to, to on-sell to customers has almost disappeared. Um, so even the big um, uh, companies like OMP and and um, and uh, Perth RC and these guys that do radios and and RC in general, um, th their heli sales tend to be direct. So there's not there's not that many people that are sort of retail only in the hobby field. So there's a, I mean there's a handful of them, but not a lot. So in a lot of cases, not just as a cottage industry, but it's sort of become a an import um, direct to retail um, industry as well. So a lot of web-based um, shops effectively. And as you said, a bit of a cottage industry. So I know sort of other than those first couple I named, the, the most of the other um, uh, Halley businesses and especially the dedicated Halley businesses are all cottage industry. Um, so... Yeah, so a few years ago, um, so I, I, we were talking about RKC, so I used to um, help Aiden out at the shop on the weekends just for a bit of fun, um, go down and help him if uh, look after the shops on the week, uh, shop on the weekend and um, people would bring in Hallies and I'd help them out with that and I was um, uh, sort of flying as a, as a team pilot for, for ARC at that stage as well. Um, and then... Uh, he decided that uh, with the with the sort of the change of the business and everything that they were going to move into drones in the in the retail side and move into filming for the for the rest of the business. 
and set up XM2. Um, so at that stage, there was the option of sort of buying a couple of the lines that he had and taking them over. So uh, uh, one of the guys in the club and I um, uh, sort of looked at it as a partnership. Um, so we sort of had a, had a few chats and and so we looked at a couple of the lines that, that Aiden had, but in the end, we um, sort of looking at the amount of stock he had and, and what it would take to restock them. And also um, uh, because he'd been focusing more on the uh, drones and on the filming and everything, the, the um, stock levels and reputation of the brands had sort of waned a little bit in Australia because uh, he sort of hadn't been focused on on making sure spares were available and kits were available. So, so in the end, we sort of didn't go with those, but um, uh, we were in contact with uh, one of the one of the best three D pilots in the world, uh, Duncan Bossion, um, who'd come out for one of the events out here. And Duncan at that stage was working as a marketing manager for Soxos, a heli professional out of Switzerland. Um, and so while we were talking, we decided sort of not to pick up the brands that Aiden had, but instead um, uh, introduce a new brand to Australia. So, uh, so in the partnership, we we bought in a couple of helis to um, to have a look at to start with. Um, bought a heli each, um, and. Uh, uh, so uh, Dean Petty uh, was my partner, and um, also uh, Josh, who was had been working at Arc. Uh, Josh Hilda. Um, Josh also sort of uh, helped out with us with the website and, and a few things as well. So um, yeah, we set up the business um, a few years ago now, and then uh, Dean, uh, you mentioned rock crawlers before. He uh, he sort of changed his uh, his view on the hobby and, and Hallies and. And decided to go into rock crawlers so uh, I ended up um, uh, we took over the business um, uh, as a sole sole trader um, a couple of years ago now um, so we've kept a fairly small line again it is a cottage industry we we have the the heli professional helis so sort of a, a 550 size a 600 size and a 7 700 size heli um, but we also carry um, uh, the Ego Drift Motors, which are a, a fairly new brand of motors that are, are, have come in with a really high um, uh, level of quality, um, and and they run really cool. They're quite an efficient motor with with still plenty of power. Um, so we've we've picked up uh, Ego Drift also as a as a, the distributor for Australia. Um, then also as Halley Professional, they've also branched out into a couple of other areas. So the um, uh, they're also doing blades. So we have um, a good line of, of Halley blades, and 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 especially now we also have some fluorescent coloured blades. So um, both a, 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 an orange colour and a yellow colour that really stand out um, on the Halley. So we're selling both main blades and tail blades, and people are. Those are, are in high demand. I actually have trouble keeping those in stock, um, uh, keeping the coloured blades. Um, and uh, we have uh, uh, also the buffer packs, which is um, the capacity supercapacitors that can be used as a backup for your RX power source. Um, so especially nowadays with telemetry, um, if you have a desolder, if you have a, a ESC or BEC die, um, the buffer pack 
will give you anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute, minute and a half worth of um, backup power for your RX and servos. So it goes from the matter of um, effectively losing all control to being able to land or, or auto-rotate with a heli um, and, and save the heli. So, so those have been quite good, but we've sort of kept the business quite small. We're not trying to... Trying to um, be all things to everyone and we don't carry sort of a full line of, of um, so we don't carry speed controllers or fly barless systems as a, a, for an example we just sort of uh, want to provide good service and and, and keep the, uh, the 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 hobby going in some way so it's it's uh, part of this was for me was to to help support the hobby and, and continue to to go to the the events and sponsor events and and uh and these things, so it's it's been good. We've uh, we've got um, sold a, a, quite a few helis out into Australia and um, have some customers out there. And probably the key key thing that we've done um, uh, is is to make sure that we always have spare parts for our helis. Um, it was an annoyance I had even as a team pilot, um, as I said, sort of the as helis waned. The ability to get spare parts for alleys became difficult and you're having to go to multiple shops or even um, overseas to, to be able to get your parts for your alleys to keep them flying. So one of the, the key things I said when I was setting up the business was I always wanted to have stock of spares in parts for people. So so for me, that's, that's one of the key things. And so we we um, uh, we make sure that we've got all the parts for all the Hallies all the time. And uh, and even if we do happen to run out of something, I can have um, I can have uh, a special order from the factory within a week. Um, uh, so long as the factory is not out of the part, then uh, we can get people up and flying. So it's it's been good for that. I, I haven't had to tell anyone yet that uh, I haven't got the part to keep them flying. Yeah, that that is critical, really. Uh... You know, I remember when, when things started to go south, you know, all the messages on forums, like, where can I get this? And, you know, if you own an Align Heli now, trying to find parts from an Align Heli is, is, which I've got a few, is becoming harder and harder, especially the, for the older sort of uh, generation of, um, of models. But, yeah, you're, do, you're doing the right thing, right thing there, definitely. I think it's just, yes, anybody that's flying helis know that you need, you need spare parts at some point in time. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's, I mean, rescue and, and all this is great, but, um, you know, things <laughs> things go wrong. Um, I, I, I crash occasionally as well. I, the last big crash I had, I it was a, it totally my own fault, but it wasn't a dumb thumb. I uh, put the canopy on the heli at one of the events, um, what is it, uh, end, of, end of 2019, I think it was, and I put the canopy on the heli, but I hadn't, um, put the canopy over the pins that hold it on the back. Oh, yeah. And I'd sort of, I'd lifted the heli up and I saw the canopy looked like it was shaking. And I, so I landed it again and thought, oh, that looked a bit strange. Maybe it's just the light hitting in a different direction. So took off again, went up about uh, 20 metres, flipped inverted, and the uh, canopy went straight through the blades. Blades stopped the heli and uh, just an enormous bang and just pieces just raining down yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in uh, on the main flight line at one of the events and it was uh, it was uh, yeah so things like that happen yeah, that's right um, that's right even to all of us so um, uh, yeah so having spares is, is is a really for me and being able to get them and get back up and flying quickly that's that's a really key thing. 
um, because I think with, with Hallie's especially, um, when you're learning as well, doing a little bit regularly is better than doing a lot not so often. So whether it's simming or whether it's flying, if you can spend half an hour, uh, 15 minutes to half an hour every day on the sim, it's so much better than spending two hours on the weekend. So the quicker you can get back up and flying and, and get back on on uh, on the horse of, of having had a crash or, or, or get damaging something on your heli, then that, that's the better to help you continue to progress. That's if you true. have that pause of, of weeks waiting for parts and it gets disheartening sometimes trying to find the part for your heli. Um, uh, so it's a good reason to have more than one heli. But um, but not all not everyone can do that. Now the important question, Dennis, uh, what helis are you currently flying? Yeah, so I've got I've got quite a collection. Um, I've got everything from uh, a, a few of the little blade one uh, fifties and one eighties um, uh, that, that I sort of don't count as being in my big collection of helis. But um, once you get above the three eighty size helis, I think I've got. Um, uh, something seven or eight Hallies at the moment. Um, but the main ones I'm flying, so I've got a, a 550 um, a Soxos that I fly. That's my beta machine. Um, I also use it as a buddy box trainer. Um, I uh, used it today actually to do some buddy box training. Um, I've got a 600 Soxos. Um, that's my uh, sort of in-between Hallie. I've then got a Strike 7, which is um, uh, just a beautiful machine. It's the the um, uh, sort of the premier one that, that, that Soxos has. And then I've got a an 800 as well um, that's currently running 766 blades, uh, so not quite at the full 800. And it's a bit of a mix and match. It was my old F3C competition machine, but... Competition sort of disappeared now, and I've um, uh, considered myself retired from from competition. So um, I've turned it back into a three D heli, um, um, but it's sort of a bit sort of, of some of the Soxos eight hundred, the old DB seven um, Soxos seven hundred, um, and uh, and also some old original Soxos seven hundred pieces that I've I've cobbled together into a into a heli. So they're my main main four helis, but I also have like a Protoss three eighty, the Logo six hundred, and I recently picked up an airframe for my next project. I picked up a Mikado. Glogo um, 690, and that is the aim of that is to put a um, turbine into it. Okay. So I haven't had a turbine coming yet. So there you go, turbine. So hey, everyone, all roads lead to turbines at some point in time for everybody as well. Yeah, exactly. I haven't haven't done a turbine before, so it's going to be a bit of a learning curve. But I I want to set up a 3D capable turbine heli. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. Do you, do you ever uh, have you got any fixed wing planes, or ever get tempted to come and have a bang of the sticks flying? Fixed, fixed so, wing? I'm actually getting going to get back into fixed wing again now. So I have at the moment. Um, I still have a couple of the old little Sukhoi um, UMXs um, that I flew on indoor. I think last year or the year before, um, I managed to fly those indoors. I've got a couple of foresights. Um, again, the little UMX foresights, um, and 
what's the what's that little hand launch that blade uh, that um uh, oh, the, uh, they did uh, the the, the oh, lighter fling it yeah yeah, yeah fling it fling or whip it whip it whip it whip it yeah so I've got one of those um but actually yeah now I'll um I've also um uh, recently moved to Queensland as we talked about at the start and I've moved from sort of a, a three bedroom townhouse with a with a double garage out the side where I had the motorbike the car and the and the 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 business um and a, a hobby room upstairs I've moved to a place where I've got a triple garage and a double garage oh, and a double car garage. don't say that that's so, my dream <laughs> so now now I have um I've got uh the, the, the garage beside the house is set up with the business and my hobby room's now in there um, and the motorbike's in there. Um, but now I've got room to store planes and, and, and actually have a, start start getting a collection of planes together. So, so yeah, I will. I'm, I'm sort of thinking about um, uh, getting something like a timber or something like that to start with, um, just yeah, getting something... Exactly, foamy high wing with with flaps and slow flyer. I can do a bit of basic aerobatics and and then maybe uh, maybe something that can do a, a bit more three D and hovering. Um, so yeah, I'll probably probably look at doing that. Maybe get a get a electric glider set up as well. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm actually looking forward to getting back into the aircraft side of the of the hobby again. Now I've got the room and the space and uh, and uh, the clubs around here as well. There's there's no, uh, so I'm up. Uh, just recently joined the Bundaberg um, uh, MAAA club. The uh, what is it? Sport Flyers, yeah, Sports Aero Flyers, I think BASF. Um, and uh, so most of the guys are, are aircraft pilots. There's a couple of guys that have dabbled with helis, as you were talking about before. There's most clubs have a few people that have a heli or two, um, even as fixed wing pilots. So. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be looking forward to getting getting in and doing that, which which should be a bit of fun. Yeah. Now, if anyone's looking at getting into helis, because helis are just cool. Like, no matter what, helis are just cool. They look cool. Flying them's cool. If you want to get in, what are some of your tips for uh, for people trying to look at getting into helis? Yeah. So there's there's a few different routes. I mean, um, whatever you do, sim is great. So like we we're talking about before. Helis, helis are quite different to aircraft in in that um, it takes a while to learn the basics um, of them. So having a sim, being able to practice and get stick time on the sim is really important. It doesn't replace real life, but it really enhances it. And then I, I think there's two good routes into helis, um, and it really depends on whether you've got a local club or local people that are into helis so if you're in an environment where you've maybe got one or two people in the club or even if there's a heli instructor in the club then i'd look at something like a 550 to 600 size heli if you've got someone that can buddy box you getting in to that bigger heli even though the expense is there it is more stable it is easier to fly um, and having someone that can buddy box you through those early learning phases um, also takes away any issues with danger because, the, I mean, helicopters can be dangerous um, just as the rest of the, the hobby can be. There's been very few accidents um, happen, but it is one of those things. I are sort of a flying lawnmower. 
So um, I think when you start stepping up to the bigger than, than sort of 450 size, if you're starting by yourself, I think that that's, that's quite a, 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 maybe a dangerous thing to do without sort of people to help you and without someone to buddy box you. So if you're in the situation where you haven't got anyone around you that can help out, then that's where the micros come in. So the either the blade helis or there's also now the ONPs, M1 and M2, these helis have the ability to, to give stability as well. So you can set them up. So in the, in the, in the basic um, uh, flight modes, they have sort of a self-leveling stability mode to make them easier for beginners. Um, you still don't want to hit yourself with one of them because they'll still cut you, yeah. but but they're not not going to uh, sort of uh, uh, in general cause a cause a life threatening injury or anything like that. So so that's the, I think those are the two of the two of the key things is really if you've got people around you, you've got someone that can help you, especially if and, and it doesn't have to be an instructor to buddy box you. I mean anyone that's got the skills to be able to competently um, uh, just even if they only fly upright. Um, they can buddy box somebody and help them learn how to get into Hallies. Um, but otherwise, getting starting with one of the smaller um, uh, smaller Blade 150S or, or, or the, um, uh, so the OMPs M1, M2, these sorts of Hallies, um, if you set them up with a stability mode, they're good to start learning on, reasonably cheap um, to crash. Um, and if you haven't got help, you will be crashing them. Um, the good thing is if you've got someone helping you, then um, through to the stage where you can get to being able to do hovers and circuits and, and all of that, you should be able to get through to there without having a crash if you've got a you've got someone buddy boxing. It sounds like very, very good advice. Uh, you know, my, my route was through the sim, the little blade helis, then into the 450, then into the 550. And uh, But yep. if I had my time again and if I had ask somebody that could buddy box me, I would have gone straight to that because I think that, yeah. you know, oh, to be this is how stupid I am, Dennis. You start talking about buddy boxing and training. I thought, wait a second, that's what I needed. I didn't, why didn't I even think about that? <laughs> a buddy box on the helicopter was makes so much sense. And because that would have, um, I would have had someone there to, to correct me if I was, you know, losing orientation or something like that. I found that with the small helis, they could get away from you and it didn't take yeah. long before they were hard to see. I remember flying my 450 yep. heli early, early on and it got away from me. And when I mean get away from me, it's not like it's, you know, 10 metres away. If it gets to 20 metres away, 30 metres away, sometimes if in certain orientations, I didn't know what was going on and I'd be sitting there second-guessing, oh, which way, am I, which way am I going now? And then I'd dumb thumb it into the ground kind of thing, fortunately miles away from me. But... um. But yeah, if I had if I had that bigger heli when I first flew the five fifty, it was like, oh, this is just crazy. This is this is just easier. And uh, but if I had that that safety net of having someone on the buddy box that could guide me and 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 talk me through what I was doing right or wrong, I think that would have been great. So um, anybody that's a competent pilot, get on the buddy box with some people. Yeah, I, I think that's. I mean, it's 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 a much faster way to learn. So I, I mean, given those two different methods getting on a buddy box with someone and spending your time doing the, 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 as I said, the 15, 15 minutes, half an hour on the sim each day. And then on the weekends, getting with someone and buddy boxing, you can progress really quickly doing, doing that. Um, having the smaller ones, you'll take much longer to learn. 
Um, and like you did, you'll, you'll have to step up slowly through the different models. So, I mean, a good example, um, uh, uh, so also even, even with buddy boxing, the other thing is with Hallie's, Hallie's even, even beginning without stability, um, uh, my dad used to describe it in, in a way of you, you take a plate of glass and put it on your hand and put a marble in the middle of it mm, yes. and try and keep that marble in the centre and then you do the same with your other hand. So you have another plate of glass and another marble and what you try to do is keep the marbles in the centre of both of these panes of glass at the same time. And it's a little bit what heli flying is like. So when you first start, it can really be an overload of trying to, every time you sort of, as, as the heli starts to move, you sort of have to correct it. But not only that, when, when the rotors go sideways a bit, the heli initially loses lift, so it dips. So you have to add more collective. But as it gathers speed, it starts to lift again because it, um, the, the rotor starts to act like a wing. And so you get transitional lift. And so then, so every time you do something, you're also having to increase and decrease the collective as it, as it moves. So um, I, I had a, a new student um, uh, come, come to my place today, and I'm lucky enough to be in Queensland. So at the moment, we don't have lockdowns or, or restrictions. And in this new place, I've got, I've got um, uh, farmland uh, on one boundary. So uh, today, I, I, I brought this guy up. He has done a very little bit of hovering by himself. Um, but I got him on the sim for a little while to sort of assess him. And then what I did for him, because he's done a little bit of work, um, I actually gave him only elevator and aileron, and I kept the collective and the tail. Um, and what that did is gave him a chance to get a feeling back for um, moving the heli around without worrying about it, uh, the height and worrying about having to correct the tail. And, and I think it, a good way to go with, um, with someone that's, say, a raw beginner or even a, said an aircraft pilot, I'd give them aileron only to start with. So that way they can see how the heli moves back and forth across the sky because with the heli, you have to start the move. So you put in a little bit of left aileron and left aileron starts the heli moving. Once it starts moving, if you keep it on that same angle and it will sit on that same angle, it will actually accelerate. So what you have to do is as it starts moving, you have to flatten the heli out again. So so now you've made one move to get it to start to move. You've then flattened the heli out a little bit. And then when you want it to stop moving in that direction, you have to apply right aileron to get it to stop and then flatten the disc again. So even just sort of to move a heli in a hover, you're putting in multiple inputs on just even one axis. And doing that with aileron and being able to sort of move across, you can see you can see the aileron really easy from behind the heli and tail on. So the tail in. So it gives the pilot a really good chance to understand how to move, correct, stop the heli. Um, and so then move up to aileron and elevator. And then eventually, depending on the pilot, either add in the rudder first or then the collective next and, and eventually get them through to having all four. Um, and, and so that stops the sort of brain overload that, that, that they get with, um, with learning to fly. That makes a lot of sense. I needed you. Where were you when I first started to fly helis, Dennis? Where were you? 
Gets, well, it sounds like we started about the same time. Yeah, it, well, roughly. Well, I remember I, I got the heli in 2007 and didn't touch it to, for four years, but I was flying. What I was doing is getting – I had Phoenix Simulator back then, and that was – it was really good with the helis back yes. then. They did some updates and started to ruin things for fixed wing or whatever, but there's a question that I ask everybody. It's the signature move, uh, and people love hearing the answer to this, and that question is, what has been your all-time favourite model? Oh, yeah, it's it's a hard one. I mean, I I I can think back to when I was car racing um, for the cars that uh, said the, the couple of the the ones that I had there were um something special when uh, sort of racing when you when you're racing in a half hour race and and uh, the final or forty five minute race we were doing back then with the with the nitro some of those were were, were key but um. I think at the moment the the heli the, the 700 heli I'm flying at the moment feels the best for me. It just it it just does everything that I want it to do. I've got the fly barless tuned exactly how I want it, and every time I fly it, I get a I get a smile on my face, and that for me is 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 the big thing. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd have to say at the moment the the 700 I'm flying. Even though, as I said, I've got all of these other Hallies um, at the same time, they've all got other good things about them. Like the 800 I've got, I've just put a monster motor in it and I can run a really low head speed and still have it perform um, sort of vertically out of sight, but but you hear the thump, thump, thump of the blades. And um, and so that's, 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 I think, the other, the other one that, um, uh, that is great. Uh, the other thing that I could say is a peanut scale that I built back when I was a, a teenager. Um, there was a little, uh, uh, I built a Volkswagen, uh, the, the uh, Volks, Volksplane or something like that. And it was the first time I, I actually was able to build something that had a proper scale look to it. And, and, and I've, I've, I've I said I used to build balsa and, and all that, but I was it was never something that I was good at. I I was much better at bolting things together than than mm -hmm. carving and sanding and, and all of that. But I built this peanut scale and when I'd finished it and, and it flew well and, and everything, and I was I sort of sat back and looked at it and thought, did I really build that? So I have a lot of appreciation for for scale models and, and the guys that can do beautiful scale aircraft and and uh, scale helis as well, the amount of effort and time to put into it and the way that they can get them to look. Um, I, I think that's that for me is the other thing that uh, the, the, all my time in the hobby, I, I, I managed to do it once. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I, was, I was happy with myself. I'm yet to do that, but I can imagine I, there are some people who just got that gift and that, that, that I don't think I have to be able to do that and the patience and the, the motivation to to work through all the challenges. But, um, yeah, it's amazing what uh, what some people can do. Well, Dennis, it's been a pleasure having you. Everybody, if you want to get a heli and the, the, the Soxos range is brought in by Dennis, uh, website is soxos, S-O-X-O-S, australia.com.au, and you'll be able to see all the helis there. Get onto the uh, Facebook page as well. Keep up to date with what... Uh, what the team are doing there at Soxos Australia. Dennis, I don't know. You upset me sometimes with the talk about being out of lockdown up in Queensland in fine weather, but you're a fine gentleman and I really appreciate you spending some time 
talking helis. I've been trying to get heli people on, and uh, it's been good to have you on and uh, and have a chat about uh, everything that you're up to. So thank you. Yeah, no, thanks very much. I'm I'm glad we finally managed to uh, to get together to have the chat. It's been excellent. It took us a few months, but we got there. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted, as I say, almost every episode now. Big thank you to Dennis Bilby for joining me. Finally, I got him on the air. Uh, and it was good to, to catch up with Dennis as well. I, I love helis. I, you know, I've, I've, I haven't flown one for quite a while, but I just love the look of helis, and I always like to see helis at the flying field as a, as a, a bit of a distraction from the, the fixed wing brigade. I love diversity in our hobby. So if you fly control line, if you fly free flight, if you fly gliders, uh, foamies, I don't care. I love to see a lot of different things out at the field. I'll tell you what, control line. I know this is flat out RC, but maybe I need to I'll just give myself an idea. I'm going to get a control liner on. I've got someone in mind that um, we can get on board to talk about control line. Just because let's share the love of different aspects of the hobby. So uh, don't forget. Subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. And whilst you're in the mood for subscribing, don't forget about the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. Not a lot of activity at the moment due to lockdown, but once we're out, there'll be more coming hopefully over the summer months and that kind of thing. So get on board with the Flat Out Flat Out RC, RC YouTube channel. Instagram page is firing. I think we've, uh, as I re- record this, I think we're over 7,700 followers. That makes us one of the biggest Instagram pages for aero modeling in australia so we're doing well and, and we compete against the world as well we can't compete against the likes of the horizon hobbies but we're doing all right with that channel and of course the facebook page that we're pretty active on as well so thanks for joining me I'll be back next week with more